Hi everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior writer, Lauren Good. Hello. And we are also joined by Wired transportation writer, Ariane Marshall. Hi there. Hi, thanks for coming back on the show from the uh, remote location. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, we're having you on today because we're gonna talk about the future of transportation. Later in the show, we'll look at how the coronavirus is changing the ways that we get around. But first, we're going to talk about how cities are adjusting to accommodate social distancing and slow down the pandemic. Now, Ariane, you wrote a story this week on Wired about how some cities are reconfiguring to prioritize outdoor gatherings. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, this is, I think, especially appropriate time to start thinking about how people are are, are dealing with this pandemic in cities because uh, it's starting to get really nice out uh, all in a lot of the country. Um, so something that a lot of city officials have seen during this pandemic, which is really no surprise, is that there's been a huge dip in traffic uh, on all sorts of roads. Um, I talked to a city official last week who told me that it's basically a Saturday morning every day throughout the day. So, um, and then at the same time, you have people who are in these uh, small apartments. I am currently in a two room apartment, which feels very small, um, and are really looking for a chance to safely get outside, um, safely not feel trapped. Um, so uh, something that a lot of cities have done, um, Denver, Oakland was really the, the leader here, uh, San Francisco, finally, finally, New York is slowly getting in on the act, um, is opening up some of those now empty streets to uh, people on foot and people on bikes and saying, uh, no, cars can't go on here right now. Uh, this is a space for people to say at safe social distances, uh, be able to get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Um, now we're seeing another step, uh, another sort of experiment going on in cities like Tampa, um, in Louisiana, in cities in Georgia, where um, restaurants that have really suffered because of the pandemic, um, trying to open up and um, thinking, hey, look, there's some space on streets, there's some space in parking lots for us to spread out and have service in a socially distanced way. Um, and, and a few restaurants are, are going forward with that and opening, uh, you know, quote unquote, dining rooms in their parking lots or on sidewalks. Um, and for me, talking to, to people who are getting into this, it was just such a nice idea for the summer. Would, like, wouldn't it be lovely if we could all eat, enjoy a glass of wine outside right now? Ariane, what do we know so far about how the virus spreads outdoors versus indoors, and how is that informing some of these decisions? Yeah, that's a huge part of uh, the decision-making process here. So it, it the science, uh, you know, if you if you read Wired every day as you should be, um, it, it's clear that the science is moving quickly here, and there's still a ton about this virus that we don't understand. But based on the latest research, it's looking more and more like outdoor transmissions are very rare. There was just uh, last week a paper, a new paper out of Hong Kong that shows that out of 300 outbreaks that they studied, uh, just one was outdoors. So outdoor transmission seems like it's rare. 
there's wind, which disperses the virus. There's uh, sun, which breaks down the virus. So there's good reason to believe that you're actually safer outdoors than you might be trapped indoors with an infected person and being constantly exposed in close quarters to the virus. So let me ask what this looks like. I mean, because we think about outdoor dining and we think about like, oh, the Parisian cafe, you know, like the the two tops along the sidewalk with people walking by. I'm imagining it's something quite different. You know, I, I don't actually think it would look super different from that. Um, I, I've been talking to, to folks who are, are really excited for the U.S. to kind of move towards this European model of, of outdoor dining. Um, a big thing here is that the cities that are implementing this, at least in the U.S., are making sure that tables are at least six feet apart. And that can be challenging on skinny little sidewalks. So that's why some are talking about moving into the street, maybe moving into you know places where street parking used to be. Um, so definitely be uh, more spaced out than uh, perhaps we're used to. Um, but you know when you think of a European square where folks are, are drinking wine, um, enjoying pasta. That's what they do in Europe, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think it would it would look a lot like that. And they're actually starting to pull this off in, in Lithuania. They're uh, really turning the city into a sort of open market cafe. And what kind of resistance, if any, do these businesses face as they try to expand, basically unfurl their restaurants so that they just spill out into the streets and therefore you know, cut off some pedestrian pathways or prevent cars from going down the streets. Um, are there any people who are very opposed to this idea? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of challenges here. One challenge is that uh, in many places, you're required to have X number of parking spots to go along with your restaurant. So if you're putting tables in your parking spots, you're cutting down on parking. So they're gonna need permission from the city to do that. Obviously, public health departments play a part here. This might not be a good fit for New York City right now because there are still many cases of the virus and it might not be a good time to really start reopening the economy in any way. Um, There's also a question of uh, liquor laws. You're not allowed to drink outside in a lot of the U.S., um, tragically, in my opinion. Um, So they're going to need to get state liquor boards involved. There's probably a lot of red tape that's going to go along with uh, making this idea a reality in a lot of places, but it's also it's also different in every city. I mean, it sounds amazing, right? It sounds like something that we've always wanted, like outdoor dining, make it easy for people to sit, stay a little bit longer, order that third glass of wine, enjoy themselves. So what are the chances that once we start abating the virus to the point where we can fully reopen society, that this sticks around, that people have grown so fond of it and restaurants really enjoy it as part of their business, that we will allow people to continue this way of, I don't know, this like leisure activity into the future. I think that's something that the people who are advocating for cities to reorder their space during this pandemic, allowing people more space to walk, more space to uh, bicycle, they're hoping those changes stick around after the pandemic as well. Um, but of course, it's gonna it's gonna come up against 
the realities of whatever the new normal ends up being. Um, there's not a lot of traffic right now, but uh, there's reason to believe that people aren't going to be so willing to get on public transit after this. It'll really freak them out. So then maybe you're going to actually see a ton more traffic once people start getting back to work because they're going to want to go in their own personal cars. They're going to want to go in an Uber or a Lyft. Um, so it's a, it's a real open question. We're going to talk about that uh, public transit after the break, but I wanted to ask each of you, would you go sit at an outdoor cafe right now and dine, wine and dine with your friends? I, if it were appropriately spaced and I was hanging out with the one person I've been hanging out with in quarantine, which is my husband, um, I, I think I would do it. You know, I'd obviously want to hear from my local public health department. Um, but I was surprised while reporting on this story how open to the idea um, the virologists I spoke to were. They they seemed to think this was a good idea and those sorts of people tend to uh, be on the side of caution. So it, it, it made me feel better about the idea. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm of the same mind. Like, I mean, right now in San Francisco, I can go to the corner with my wife, get a uh, takeout and then walk with it two blocks to the park and then sit in the park and enjoy the takeout in the open air. And if I could do that, you know, with a table and with a glass of wine with just her, uh, because that seems like the safest thing to do since we live together, um, then, yeah, I would totally take advantage of it. Um, would not it would feel weird at first but I think we'd get used to it pretty quickly because it also sounds pretty pleasant what about you Lauren I think I would be in that situation where it becomes this vetting process of your friends even if you don't mean it to be where you would be asking everybody or sort of judging everybody based on how seriously they're taking social distancing and I would feel comfortable doing it with a friend who was on the same page as me but if I had a friend who was interacting a lot with the quote unquote outside world and then wanted to grab dinner at an outdoor cafe, I might, I might hesitate. I would also wonder what happens when you have to use the restroom, of course, and you're using the same restroom facilities that everybody else is using. Um, you know, you're not in there for very long, hopefully, hopefully, and you're washing your hands and all of that stuff. But I would just wonder how cafes and restaurants would, would do that Would their would there be wipes and hand sanitizer everywhere? Um, some restaurants have attendants who, you know, work there and like wipe down surfaces. Um, I, yeah, I think that that might be the thing for me is just knowing that at some point, even if you're feeling relatively safe with the person that you're dining with, you're still interacting with people in a way and they could be asymptomatic and you could be asymptomatic. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the bathroom equation. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think it's in this, it really points to this thing I saw when talking to the people who own restaurants this week, which is in places like Georgia that have technically opened up, these restaurateurs are in this weird position where it, they're taking it upon themselves to figure out how to sanitize their restaurants, how to make people comfortable because they're not really receiving any instructions from the government. So that's the kind of thing I, I'd love to see, um, you know, some sort of guideline as to how to do this as safely as possible. Absolutely. 
And I would love to be in a position where I could support local restaurants and support the business owners who feel an incredible amount of pressure to try to reopen their businesses right now. But there are just so many unknowns. Um, yeah, I might still be enjoying my, uh, my own little chair and patio out here for a while longer before I venture out into the world again. All right. On that note, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how transportation is changing. Welcome back. The coronavirus has caused us all to rethink how we do some very basic things, how we interact with people, how we stay clean, and how we move around. Transportation has changed drastically since this quarantine started, and even when we return to some form of normalcy, the way that we get from here to there will look very different. Ariane, I want to ask you, since you're the expert here, what kinds of changes should we expect as we begin to open up? Oh man, it's so it's so unclear to me right now, um, and obviously it's gonna look different everywhere. Um, but based on some uh, some kind of like a preliminary data out of China, which seems to be a few months ahead of the U.S. and all this. Um, it seems like the immediate period after we get this pandemic more under control might be a time when private cars get uh, a little more in vogue. Uh, they've seen in China more people buying vehicles. I think part of that is just sort of a pent up demand. No one was buying cars for two months and maybe they didn't needed a new car anyway. Um, but also part of that might be that people feel it's the safest way to get around right now. Um, so I, I think there might be um, sort of a, a move towards that. But I also think this could be a big opportunity for bicycles. Um, in a lot of places, uh, bike repair shops and bicycle shops were actually classified as essential businesses. And those places have reported seeing huge upticks in people who are interested in getting around on bike, um, especially now that there's not a lot of traffic and it feels a little less scary. Um, so I, I think for, for those places, uh, they really hope that that's going to stick and that people that start biking during the pandemic really stick with it uh, because they don't have to get too close to anyone while they're on their bike. Ariane, you, you started to address, you know, countries that have started to reopen again, such as parts of China or in South Korea. And I'm wondering if we're seeing people back to taking public transit in places like that. And if so, what safety precautions are being put in place to ensure that public transit is, is safe? Yeah, so I, I haven't been paying as close attention to South Korea as I probably should have. But uh, my understanding is that, you know, levels are not back to what they were, um, but that life is, is certainly getting a little more normal there. Um, some things that you're seeing um, in transit is um, like little decals on the ground that are reminding people to uh, stand as far apart as possible. Um, you know, even before they get into the station, um, reminders to, to stay apart. Um, you're also seeing more testing of staff members. Um, this is even happening in New York. They have what they call a the temperature brigade, uh, where they just basically arm folks with thermometers and send them into staff break rooms to make sure that, you know, people driving trains and the people who are driving buses are staying safe. Um, because, you know, not only are they at risk 
uh, of the virus, but also um, there's a real possibility that they could become vectors for the virus because they're coming in contact with so many people as they do their jobs. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that the picture of public transit in North America and Europe is is a little dire right now. There's uh, real questions about funding, um, how they will continue to operate. Um, it it's it's really a bit a big question mark for me. Yeah, you know, here in San Francisco, um, they've cut bus lines to only the lines that see the highest number of riders and those are mostly ones that go from like the city center to places like the major hospitals right because uh, people who work in the hospital still need to be able to get to and from work um ridership is down something around 80 percent i know that in new york and boston it's down around 90 percent on buses and subways and once we start to loosen the stay-at-home orders, you know, a lot of people are not going to feel comfortable riding the buses and the subways, so they're going to stay off of them. That means there's no fares. Um, we may be in a situation where we're going to have to be, like, governments are going to have to be, you know, pouring tons of additional money into transit in order to keep it running. Yeah, definitely. And and it's something that um, I've spent the week talking to a few transit agencies and I just I just had with the director of uh, operations at LA Metro Jim Gallagher um, who who explained to me that there's a little bit of sort of a chicken and the egg problem where um, they're trying to follow the um, lead of businesses uh, they're trying to kind of suss out who's opening and where like is there a bus line that goes to this Walmart that's still operating uh, maybe we have to run that more frequently but also businesses are sort of looking to Metro and saying well can we get when when are you guys going to have uh, service so that we know that our workers can get to work so it's it's this real sort of circular issue here um, that that agencies have to really look to their community and keep having conversations with them and keep having conversations with their riders about what they're they're um, comfortable with. I will say a lot of them are finding these little uh, sort of cleanliness fixtures. I talked to Bart uh, last week, uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit in the Bay Area, and they um, mentioned to me that they have these little nylon straps that people hold on to when they're on uh, the train, they might take those off and give you your own little personalized nylon strap that you can use. Um, so they're they're starting to get creative about ways they can make people comfortable, but um, but they're not sure when that's going to be. Ariana, I have to ask you, what is this doing to the scooter economy? Because I can tell you the one thing I would not do right now is if I saw an idle scooter on the side of the road, just go hop on it and give it a ride. Oh man, well. A lot of scooter companies responded to this virus by actually just kind of pulling out and shutting down service in some cities. Now we're seeing a few start to come back. Um, Bird just restarted service in a few cities. Um, but there's also kind of from a business perspective, there's been some talk for maybe a year or so about, oh, when is the big consolidation in the scooter business going to happen? And it looks like it's happening um, just this week, Uber announced that it's investing $170 million in Lime. Um, but the sort of second thing that's happening there that I think has gotten less attention is that Uber is offloading Jump, its bike and scooter share service, to Lime. So Uber is just like getting out of 
bikes and scooters right now. And my big question is, but how does that transform cities? How does that transform city contracts? Um, You know, there's, there's those companies right now, when I talk to them are saying, oh, this is a great time for us because people don't want to be on public transit and they might not have cars. So they should be able, they should be getting on bikes and should be getting on scooters. But I think a lot of people have your concerns, Lauren, which is like, I don't want to touch that. I don't know who touched that. Um, yeah, it seems how- like it would be a great opportunity for personal scooter ownership, but not necessarily shared scooters. Yeah, there's also uh, some like there's one a company called Wheels that's starting to put this special kind of coating on their handlebars. They say. Uh, sort of repels the virus in some way or doesn't uh, like allow things to stick to it. I don't know the science of all that, but I, I don't, I do know they're trying to sort of innovate and figure out again, ways to make people comfortable using the product. Um, you can still catch an Uber or a Lyft now in most places. Like, you, you know, it's pretty easy to find a driver who's driving around looking for somebody to pick up. Um, no more pool rides anymore, though. No more lift line. You know, I'm really curious because this was such a big thing for us in cities over the last few years. You know, getting into a car with strangers, sitting right next to each other, and then getting dropped off and saving a few dollars. I wonder if this is ever going to come back. Or, you know, if it does, is it going to come back this year? Are we going to be able to do pools and lift lines, you know, before the holiday party season? Yeah. I'm not sure. I will say that the pooled rides for Uber and Lyft were not huge money makers, so I don't know how sad they are to lose that line of business. Um, they were very cheap rides. They were inefficient rides um, because uh, you know they're constantly working on those algorithms. But you still sometimes found yourself in a situation where you know you got on an Uber and then you drove for a mile and then it like somehow for some reason turned around and went back to near your house and picked up someone else. Um, so it was sort of a fraught business. Uh, so I I I I really am not sure if that's going to come back. Um, but those companies do face a big problem on the horizon, which is this question of whether people will be able to afford to take ride hail in the way that they used to. I know uh, for me, it was sort of like a splurge thing I did if I was running late to something. And in the future, I might think twice about making that kind of splurge just because the way the economy is looking. Um, So they have to figure out a way to capitalize on the fact that people might not be able to get on, uh, people might not want to get on public transit, but also keep it cheap enough so that people can afford to take it, um, even as they're trying to become profitable, uh, which is something uh, Lyft, for example, said they'd be able to do next year. And now they're saying, we don't know anymore. You know, it's going to happen, but we don't we don't know when. Um, One last thing that we have to ask you about, uh, because you're on the show this week and this is the week that uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk announced that his eighth child, is that right? seventh seventh child is now in the world um how do you pronounce this kid's name okay so so elon musk was just on joe rogan's podcast again um i was of the mind that that he was trolling all of us and that this wasn't actually the kid's name but it it sounds like it is so it's 
X Ash A12 is his name, which is named after Grimes, his, his partner Grimes, the mother of this child, tweeted something about it. It's Ash is an elven pronunciation of AI. Um, A12 has something to do with their favorite fighter jet. Anyway, that's how you pronounce it. I, I suspect the kid's just going to go by Ash, but who knows? Wow. What, I mean, what else is going on in the world of Elon Musk, Arianne? Oh, man. Well, uh, Tesla reported last week that they ha- made a slim profit in the first quarter of 2020, which is always good news for them. It's their third in a row, which they've never done before. Um, but, you know, they're also suffering from uh, the virus. Their assembly plant in Fremont has been closed down since March, so they haven't been able to make cars, which is how they make money. Um, and Elon Musk is really upset about this. And he's gone on a rant both on Twitter, which is his favorite medium, but also on an earnings call with investors, which are usually these like incredibly boring calls where they talk, talk about gross profit margins. But he uh, went on this rant about freeing America last week. Um, he wants to free America from shelter in place orders. He thinks he doesn't think coronavirus is a hoax. I definitely he wouldn't go that far, but he does think shelter in place orders are an overreaction. Um, but I I guess if we do head out to outdoor cafes anytime soon, we'll see Elon Musk there. Yes, Elon will be there with all of his children. Well, let's take uh, another break, and when we come back, we will go through our recommendations. All right, Ariane, you get to go first. What's your recommendation? Okay, my I, every time I come on here, my recommendations get lamer and lamer. Um, I don't mean for this to be a plug, but it is. Uh, I just recently just signed up for a ton of magazine subscriptions. I already had a Wired subscription, um, but I'm finding it such a lovely break now that my life is totally revolving around screens. I wake up, I sometimes exercise in front of a screen. I uh, then open my work computer and start working. And then after work, it's just basically like, well, what are we going to watch on TV today? Um, It's so nice to have something you can hold in your hand and read. Um, So just just go and read some magazines, folks. What are some of the titles that you subscribe to if you're at liberty to say? Sure. I subscribe to The New Yorker, which I've subscribed to and canceled in the past. And now it's back in my life as a as a, a magazine. Really great. Definitely get it. And then also with my New Yorker subscription, we got a Vanity Fair subscription. Condé Nast. What a great producer <laughs> of magazines. Uh, Lauren, what is your uh, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is Billions on Showtime. I had never watched Billions before. It is now in its fifth season. I am still on season number one. I am totally sucked into the world of pre-COVID unfettered capitalism that this show offers. Um, it's great. Starts off with a bang. You're totally sucked into the characters right away. I really like Damian Lewis as an actor. I Paul Giamatti. He's great. Um, 
yeah, it's really good. I'm enjoying it. I recommend Billions. I'm I'm on season four right now. I'm also watching it currently. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? All right, so I'm going to recommend a piece of streaming media. It's called Questo's Recisto, also known as the Questlove Quarantine Live from the Kibbutz. Um, Questlove, who you may know as the drummer for The Roots and the musical director for the late night television show that The Roots is the house band for, Jimmy Fallon show. Um, Questlove is a very accomplished DJ and he is just a font of knowledge. He goes online on all the platforms, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube. I've been watching it on YouTube. It's great because I can just put it up on my TV screen and play it through my soundbar. He does like a four hour DJ set streamed live on the internet, maybe like three nights a week, four nights a week. He's on there playing tracks live, talking about them. He puts his laptop screen on part of the on part of the frame so that you can see the songs that he's playing uh you know you have shazam open you're like taking notes it's really just amazing and it's great to tune in live because he responds to people on the live chat which you can see on the side of the screen um but also they're usually archived so you can go back and you can watch the ones from about the last week or so uh, it's just fun, you know? It's like lighthearted, it's a good time, it's like dance music, you can put it on while you're cooking, or you can put it on while you're eating. It kind of makes you feel like you're part of this little club with like Questlove talking to you and helping you out through the through the evening. Uh, so highly recommended. Great recommendation. Thank you, Mike. Of course. You're welcome. Uh, all right, well, that's our show. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Ariane, for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course, great to see you on the little postage stamp on my screen. Um, if any of you have feedback, you can find us all on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. And until next week, so long. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.